Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this not in this world. On Saturday, 16th of September, Ralph Cunnington taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Ralph looks at the topic of worship. Ralph is the senior pastor at City Church in Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. So we're moving swiftly on to the uh, uncontroversial topic of worship. Um, uh, And just as we start off, uh, here's a a quote. um, It's not exactly what someone has said, but uh, someone has said something very similar to me. Um, I can't see the point of worship. I mean, what sort of God would create a people simply for them to worship him? Isn't that horribly self-absorbed and insecure to want people to sing his praises for eternity? How would you respond? Hands up with an answer. It's a two-way street, not a one-way street. So does um, God worship us? Okay, <laughs> he loves us. So if you sat next to your wife and just poured out your love and adoration upon her and you never got anything back, it would be a one way street. The fact is, it isn't, it's about relationship. Okay. So that's what worship is all about, it's relationship. So worship is about relationship. Is it equal, the relationship? No. Asymmetrical mutuality. <laughs> Love it. Now that is it. But what, what does that mean? It's not mutual. So we don't do, us and God don't do exactly the same thing for each other. But it's mutual in the fact that we do different things for each other in the same way that husbands, the husband and the wife have different roles in the marriage, but they're still both equal. Okay. Almost entirely with you until the end. Ignore the end. But uh, you're absolutely right. So it's asymmetrical in that we are different because he is God and we are not. And yet it is mutual because it is relational. That's absolutely right. But but why is it good? To, why is it good to worship? So um, this afternoon, the mighty Man City are playing Fulham. The mighty Man City are playing Fulham uh, after the less mighty Man United play someone. Um, And I will be cheering them on as they absolutely run Fulham ragged at the Etihad, the great forum of their glory. Um, Now, why is it right for me to feel that way about Man City? In my world, why is it right for me to feel that way about Man City? Because <laughs> they're really good. They're the best team. They, they are brilliant. They are magnificent. All glory belongs to them, and the Premiership last year proved it. Um, but that's the point. We... Worship is a truth. We don't say that God is amazing 
in order to make him feel good. Yeah. We say because that's just the way it is. And the more we work and live in the truth, hmm. the better off we are. Yeah. It's not, it's not it, that's just the way it is. Yes, that's exactly it. Because worship is recognising something for what it is. So do you remember, um, I think it was last year in the Grammys, Adele won a Grammy, do you remember that? And what did she do? Famously. She broke it. Do you remember why she broke it? Because she said Beyonce deserved it. Okay, so what was happening at the Grammys was that whoever gives out the Grammys, was giving glory to Adele. But because she felt she wasn't worth it, she didn't deserve it, she didn't want it, it wasn't really praising her and glorifying her because it wasn't corresponding to the truth of the way things are. What we're doing in worship is acknowledging the truth of the way things are. Does that make sense? But if God created us, didn't he? Mm, Definitely. Created us to worship it, to have fellowship with it. Hmm. Then, when you're in that state of worship, well, personally, I, I feel more fulfilled than at any time. Absolutely. That hole or that yearning. Yeah. It's a place of safety and wonder. Because that is recognising the reality of life and the way things really are. So, so when I say that I glory in Man City, that is going to end up in misery for me because they are not truly going to be the best football team forever and ever, and ultimately uh, they're not. Okay, So my worship there, please take this with a pinch of salt, right? I'm not really idolising Man City. But my worship there will fall down and will be deeply unhealthy for me because they are not the greatest But with God, he is the great one, the one from whom all goodness flows. The the worship we ascribe to him is the way things really are, and therefore we benefit from it. Does that make sense? Because we were created for it. Because we were created for it, yes. So Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. Cover your handouts. What is the chief end of man? And enjoy him forever. That's what we were created for. We were created in his image to give him glory, not because he's vain, but because that's the way it is. It's recognising him for who he is and us for who we are. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him, that is God, and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the source of all things. He, he is the means of their creation, all things created through the word, through the Son. And He is the object of their existence. He does not need us, we do need Him, and we have been created for the very purpose of ascribing to Him the glory, the worship that is truly His. That is why we're here. That is why He created us. And you know, God is absolutely passionate about his own glory. Uh, Just turn up Isaiah 48 with me. Phenomenal, phenomenal verses. We don't understand God aright until we understand Isaiah 48. Verses 9 to 11. Talking about why, why he holds back his wrath from his sinful people. Ultimately, why he sent Jesus to the cross. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. 
For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. There is no one in the universe who is more passionate about the glory of God than God himself. It is the chief goodness in our universe. It is the chief end of man and woman to glorify God. He created a universe which would declare his glory. Psalm 19 uh, teaches us that. He created humanity to bring him glory. Uh, Listen to Psalm 63, verses 1 to 5. We didn't look at it earlier on, but it's, it's fascinating. Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. God deserves glory. That is the way things are. We worship God because that is what is rightfully his. But here's the thing that Psalm 63 teaches us. That it's for our good. That that it is for our joy. The second half of the first answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. His glory is our joy. His glory is our good. Uh, you all heard of John Piper? Yeah. Okay. He, he takes uh, the, that first answer to the short catechism uh, and, and links up the two things together. The way we glorify God is by enjoying him forever. Uh, he's not original, of course. He's drawing on Jonathan Edwards. He's drawing on C.S. Lewis as well. Listen to C.S. Lewis on this. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or of anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval or the giving of honour. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. You don't really enjoy Christ until your heart sings his praises, until you cannot stop speaking about him, until you cannot stop singing about him. It fulfills our enjoyment. It's why we love to talk about our spouse, why we love to talk about our children, why we love to talk about our church and the fact that our church is the best church there is. It's all right for you guys to think that, okay? It's a right to praise because you enjoy. And it's the body of Christ. These are things we should praise and we should enjoy. And the praise, the delight, completes our enjoyment. So to summarise, the glory of God is the highest and most wonderful reality in the universe. God is passionate for his own glory, more passionate than you will ever be. 
And in his love, he has created each and every one of you with the capacity to share his joy in himself. The most wonderful reality that exists. That's why we're called to praise. That's why Psalm 95 says, come, let us bow down. In worship, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. So, if we want to know what it's like to be truly human, you, you will not find it aside from worshiping God. So, so, all your friends who are not Christians, they're not really being truly human. That's the tragedy. We're living in a city of subhuman humans because they are not doing what they were fundamentally made to do. That should fill your hearts with compassion. Compassion for the lost. This is not just some neutral intellectual exercise. We have 96% of our city who are spiritually dead, heading to an eternity of hell, who even in their short lives are not doing the very thing they were created to be, who are not having that joy, that relationship that they were made for. It's tragic. So it's true that God holds. Absolutely. It's more than a hole, though. Yeah. It's, it's, we are walking ghosts outside of Christ. It's just tragic. Let's move on to, to what we worship. So all true worship is God-centred because he is worthy, delightfully so. You know, there's, there's a danger of going to a church with excellent music. And I know CCM has excellent music. I think City Church Manchester has excellent music as well. And we, we want excellent music because remember what we saw last time? The psalms, the hymns, the songs, they, they reorder our emotions. Doing rubbish music is being really poor at using the means of grace. But there is a danger of confusing excellent music with excellent worship, isn't there? That the two are not synonymous. They have a close relationship, but they are not synonymous. And there is a danger of admiring our worship because we both have brilliant music, but not admiring the object of our worship. Do you see? And the way we avoid that danger is we need to stop focusing on ourselves and we need to focus on God. We need to avoid singing about what we're doing and make sure we're singing about the one we're doing it for. Do you see? Uh, Psalm 66 is a classic example of this. Let me read Psalm 66. Uh, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. His awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power, his eyes. Watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison, laid burdens on our backs. You let the people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. But you, you brought us to a place of abundance. 
I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God, who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. Do you see what the psalmist does again and again and again and again? It just comes back to God. Well, why am I saying it? Because of what he's done. Because of who he is. All true worship is not talking about what we're doing. It's delighting in God and all he is and all he is for us. How, how practically do we know he's worthy? Well, it's by, by saying the things he's done, isn't it? You won't know the reality unless, like the psalmist, you keep on looking back at his deeds, meditating on his Lord day and night. And whenever we stop doing that, our worship will always drift. Our hearts are always going in one direction or another. And in fact, it's worse than that. Our hearts are always veering. And we need the compass of our hearts to keep on being realigned by God's word received in the power of the spirit day to day in our lives. That is what will keep our worship focused on him and not ourselves. So, so how do we worship? Point three. And the point here is that human worship responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. Okay, I'll say that again because it's really important. Human worship responds to the redemptive provisions that God has graciously made. So right back in the start of the scriptures, Genesis 1, we're created in the image of God to worship him. Genesis 3, we invert that relationship. We want to rule our own lives and worship ourselves. Adam and Eve want the knowledge of good and evil. They want to be like God. Sin comes into the world and they stop worshipping him and they start worshipping themselves. And from that point on, God could not dwell with humanity. It's why Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, why death comes into the world. Spiritual death, alienation from God comes immediately. Physical death comes later. But God is always a God of grace. He is not going to let this, this ripped apart relationship continue. His name, his glory now depends on it. He staked it. And so he has made provisions by which sinful humanity can come back into relationship with him to ascribe him the praise and the glory he's due. What are the provisions? Salvation. salvation yes. And how is that salvation seen initially? You could, I mean, how's it seen in Genesis 3 even? Say that again? A plan. Yes. A planet is formed with a promise of a serpent-crushing seed of Eve. And a picture of it is given. What does, what does God do for Adam and Eve when they leave the garden? They're wandering the wilderness. Exposed, naked. What's he given? Clothes. What sort of clothes? An animal skin. An animal skin. So right there, as they're plunged out into darkness, 
The Lord clothes them with a dead animal. And then we see that happening again and again, don't we? So we see it in Genesis 15. The covenant is cut. The animal bits are put either side. The smoking brazier goes down in between them. Symbolically, in the making of the covenant, saying, if us break this covenant, we will be split in two like the animals. But who goes between the animals? Normally it's both parties to the covenant. What's Abraham doing is the smoking brazier representing God goes between? Well, the Lord went through it in the smoking brazier. But what's, what's Abraham doing? Even worse, he's sleeping in Genesis 15. He's asleep. He's doing nothing. The only one who says, I'm going to become like the animals that are broken in his covenant is the Lord. Then he gives the sacrificial system, when he gives the Pentateuch, when he gives the law, the the, the annual sacrifice of atonement, the the scapegoat, uh, the Passover. All of these pictures of ways through the death of a representative substitute that we can be brought back into the relationship with God to praise him. Where's that fulfilled? In Jesus. So, back into groups. And we're going to look at three changing patterns of the way we worship God according to his redemptive provisions. And um, up to the third table here, can you look at sacrifice? Uh, Two at the back on both sides. Can you look at priests? Uh, And the three at the front here, look at temple. And we got seven minutes. So let's um, let's look at sacrifice first. What did you see? <coughs> what is Leviticus 17 all about? The life of a creature is in the blood. And I give it to you to make a for yourselves. So. Yep. Yes. Yeah. What's the significance of the blood? Life comes through Yeah. So the blood is represented the life that's taken. The blood of an animal substitutes for the blood of the offerer. So the life of the animal for the life of the offerer, that the offerer may approach God. That's what atonement's about. And you mentioned propitiation. What's propitiation? What does it mean, the word propitiation? Yeah. Turning a curse into a blessing. Turning a curse into blessing, yeah. It's, it's propitiation. So atonement carries two, two parts. There's something called expiation, which is where you, you get rid of the offence, and propitiation, where you turn away the righteous anger of the one offended. And what the blood of the sacrifice does is it does both. It wipes away the sin and it turns away the righteous, just wrath of the one offended. Because the blood of animals could never do that. And that's why the sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again. But Hebrews 10 tells us that one sacrifice was offered once for all. The blood of one, the blood that flowed out along with the water from Jesus' side, once for all, has propitiated the righteous wrath of God. 
and wiped away our sin in its entirety, brought blessing in the place of curse, his curse, in our place, that we have his blessing. Hmm. That was the first sacrifice, wasn't it? It was, it's, it's not explicitly stated there, but it's, no, no, it's implied. I mean, some animal had to die to cover us. Yeah, I, I think it's very much symbolic at that point, as a, as a hint just after the promise of the serpent crusher. Yeah. Um, let's get a priest's back four tables or thereabouts. What did you come up with? Can you sit, sit that last bit? Yeah. Yeah, so who, who used to be priests? Levites, and specifically in the line of Aaron. So it was just one family within the Levite tribe who could be priests, and they had to go through all of this rigmarole to become priests. What do priests do? They intercede, so they stand between God and man. They are that, that mode of kind of mediating, bringing about that relationship. But now we have... Who's a priest now? There's two right answers. Yeah, there's, there's Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. What makes him the great high priest? What is Jesus that no one else is? And certainly none of Aaron's line were. We saw it in the last session. The Son of God who is one person of the Trinity, who, unlike the other two persons of the Trinity, has two natures, divine nature, human nature, distinct but inseparable. In himself, in his incarnation, he has become the perfect mediator, hasn't he? Because he has taken on humanity that humanity might be brought to God. Do you see? He's what... Those priests could only ever like so vaguely point towards. How is it possible now, though, as, as you read in First um, Peter two, for all of us to be a kingdom of priests? How is that possible? Sorry. We're clothed in His blood. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's just the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies through the sacrifice, and then always with danger, so he had to have a, a rope on his leg just in case he dropped dead in the presence of God and had to be dragged out. But now we're, we're cl- Say that again? We're all in the family line. We're all in the family line. So that you have the line of Aaron, but now we're in the family line of Jesus. And, and it's even more than that. It's, it's not just clothed in his blood. We're now clothed in Christ himself. That the Holy Spirit unites us to God the Son. So what is his is ours. He's taken on human nature so that we can be united to him and his human nature. So we can have the same rights of access to God as he has. So he is the, the great high priest who is off the once for all propitiatory atoning sacrifice for sin. But now in him we have free direct access. Not just sometimes, not when we're being good, not when we're singing particularly well, uh, not when we've been praying every single day and doing our quiet times, but all the time in him through faith. Do you see? 
It's a radical transformation of access. Radical. Radical transformation of sacrifice. Radical transformation of access. Finally, temple. What do we learn about temple? So Exodus 25, where was the temple initially? Well, it wasn't even a temple. What was it? A big tent. Those of us who hate camping, that's a problem for. Um, so God inspired it. They built it. And then God came and lived in it. Yep. One place. Yeah. And his mobile presence, basically, he went with them, coming down into the tabernacle symbolically in the Shekinah glory, the cloud of smoke, etc., etc., then you read in First Kings eight what happened next. Sorry, say that again. Yes, yeah, stone tablets in there, and then once they're in Jerusalem, that's the focus of God's people. Solomon builds the temple, and God's glory comes to rest on the temple. But still, if you want to meet with God, where do you go? You go to the temple. That's, that's where he is. And as we heard earlier on, just one person once a year, the high priest can go into the presence of God. What's the situation now that Christ has come? Where's the temple? It's us, isn't it? That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 3. It's us corporately. But 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that it's us individually as well. It's astonishing. Every single one of us is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. There is far greater glory in each one of us than there was ever in that partial picture of the temple with the Shekinah glory. That's why we say no to sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6. That's why Christ Church Magister is so precious. Because God dwells in you. All the time. All of you. And it's not... So people say, we're coming to the house of God... Like you, can, you can be anywhere. You're the people of God. You are the temple. You are the church. Not this building. Not any building. Not the bridge club, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. Um, let's... One quite interesting yeah. point is, in the Old Testament, it's the temple gets built and is defined as temple and then God moves in. Hmm. In the Corinthians, it's you are the temple because that's where God is, yes. rather than that is the temple, God is going to be there. The secret thing has become reversed. The temple is defined as, isn't defined as the place we built for God. The temple is defined as that's where God is. Where God is present, yeah. And I guess even, even in the Old Covenant, it's called the temple... Um, Proleptically, so looking forward to what it will become. Because until, until God dwells there, there is nothing significant. Uh, but it's why there's all the controversy in terms of building the temple in the first place, because it's always just a picture, just looking forward. Yeah. Good. Um, can you turn up John chapter 4? Key verses to understand if we want to know what it is to worship God rightly within his redemptive provisions. Let me read um, John four nineteen to 26. Uh, so Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. 
Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Verses 19 to 20. Uh, the Samaritan woman's asking Jesus to engage in a debate that had been going on for a long time. <clears throat> so he's in Samaria, and the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the law. That's, that's it. They didn't have the rest of the Old Testament. So if you only accepted the first five books of the law, where will you worship God? Would they know right at the end of Deuteronomy, um, you've you got the blessings and curses being pronounced from the mounts. And, and so they said the place to worship God was on Mount Gerizim. But of course, the, the Jews had the whole of the scriptures. Uh, they know that the temple was established in Jerusalem. So they say the place to worship God is Jerusalem. But like many of the controversies that Jesus is asked to engage on, he says, you're asking all the wrong questions. It's not really the issue where we worship anymore. Verse 21, it's not about where you worship, Jesus insists. But actually, do you know, that's not exactly right. It's not exactly what he says. What he actually says is that it is no longer about where you worship. It was significant in the past. But, but why is it not significant anymore? What has changed so that it is no longer significant? You see, Jesus actually does side with the Jews, doesn't he? Verse 22 He's clear, God had blessed the temple in Jerusalem as the place where his presence was. It was right for the Jews, the the southern kingdom, Judah, to go to Jerusalem. That's what God had determined. But he says, that old debate, that is past its sell-by date. That is no longer relevant, no longer important. Because verse 23, it's not whether you worship in Gerizim or Jerusalem... But rather the question now is, do you worship in spirit and in truth? See, that is what really defines true worship. Not all claims to worship are true worship. But the difference between true worship and false worship is not dependent on whether it's in Jerusalem or Samaria. It doesn't depend on whether you sing hymns or choruses, whether you sing with a choir or a band, whether you sing hill songs or Sovereign Grace or Charles Wesley. The thing that defines it as true worship or false is are you singing in spirit and in truth? Do you know the NIV has actually changed the way it's translated this from, from the old NIV to the 2011 NIV? And what it's helpfully done has, is that it's shown that um, these two things are not separate. It's not you do it in spirit over here and you do it in truth over there. But Jesus is seeing those two things as going together because the two things, spirit and truth, they focus on him himself. 
let me explain. He, he is the Messiah. Remember we talked about Psalm 51 and the Spirit coming on David as king and do not take your presence from me, do not let your spirit leave me. Jesus is the ultimate spirit-anointed king, leader of his people. That's why he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's why when he's baptised, the Holy Spirit comes down on him and the word from God the Father, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He is the ultimate spirit-anointed king, representative of his people. He is the spiritual man par excellence. That's who he is. And yet he's also the truth, isn't he? That's what John 1 starts off with. He's the word of God revealed. He is God present with us. He is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate revelation. In Jesus, we have spirit and truth united. So so when Jesus is saying that the time is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth... He's referring to what he is accomplishing on the earth through his perfect life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. In other words, the whole purpose of Jesus' ministry is to create for the Father a community of true worshippers who can worship him in spirit and in truth. In truth, as in corresponding to what God has revealed of himself through Jesus. But also in spirit. And I think that's referring there to, to the fact that, that in Jesus' work, he's made it possible for, for God, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us. So, so we no longer need to go to somewhere f- to find the presence of God. But now God dwells in us. His presence is within us, both individually as believers, but corporately as a local church. But, but secondly, I think... Jesus is talking about the fact that that now his work is complete. The Spirit has come into us and he enables us to to live for him. He he enlivens us. He enables us to be the true worshippers we were made to be. So why did Jesus come? To create a worshipping community of people who together know the presence of God by the Holy Spirit, who lives in them, lives among them, and who equips them to worship him according to what he's revealed of himself. That's why God is to be worshipped in faith, hope and love. And it's not something we just do when we meet together. It's something that we do all the time. Every moment of our lives, we, Romans 12, we are to give our lives as sacrifices, living sacrifices, worship unto him. Uh, But what does that mean uh, in the context of uh, a corporate gathering? Um, How much time do we have? Not much. Okay, can we quickly go into groups? Um, Can you guys look at, uh, first two tables, look at word, uh, next spiritual gifts, uh, back groups, singing, front groups, community. Five minutes and we'll come back together. So, Sorry, I forgot to tell you what to do with your boxes. <laughs> um, the point of the first box was to say, um, what is the purpose of the word in our Christian meetings? And then what does that look like at your church, whether you're at CCM or another church? Uh, so let's start off uh, with word. What does 
Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 2 tell us about the place of the word in our gatherings? spiritual milk yeah yeah what does that look like at your church how do you do that We're going to come on to it when we get to singing as well. There's such a crucial role that is expected to be played by song in the life of the church. Yeah. Absolutely. If we're not worshiping when we're preaching, and if we're not worshiping when we're listening, then there's something deeply wrong with what's going on. Yeah. 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 The language of dwelling, which of course is the same language as you've got in John 1 about Jesus dwelling, tabernacling amongst us. It's that sense that that God dwells in us by his word. He dwells in us by his word and spirit together. We so often try and pull those two apart, but they they belong together. Distinct but inseparable again. Yeah. What about spiritual gifts? There's loads more which could be said on this. Um, Yep. And who's it for? So, you know, Ephesians 4, Andy, Tim being given gifts as pastors, teachers. What's, what's the purpose of it? In, sorry? Sorry? To equip, yeah. Yeah, to build each other up. For, in the language of First Corinthians 12, it's for the common good. So if your gift is teaching, it's not for yourself. It's not to look great. It's for the blessing of God's family. If your gift is hospitality, it's not just you bake yourself really nice cakes. It's for the blessing of the family, for the common good. And therefore we must use our gifts, whatever they are, for the building up of the church. And I guess my question on that is how how do you do that? So how do you make sure that you don't just privilege one gift above all the rest? Um, I guess in in churches like ours, we're probably more likely to, to privilege the gift of teaching uh, maybe the gift of, um, of singing and leading worship bands. But how do we make sure that we, we give space for everyone to use their gifts for the common good? Gift of administration. Gift of administration. We, we actually let that be used a lot. <laughs> we need it desperately. Um, what about you guys at the back? Uh, singing. Well, we saw it's uh, a way of expressing thankfulness, but 
but also togetherness as well. So both of the verses talk about singing different songs, songs, spiritual songs to one another, and even admonishing one another. So in the, the singing, there's a there's a teaching element to the worship. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. So so we we sing them to God. Uh, but at the same time, we sing them to each other. It's that vertical, horizontal. Um, it's really interesting. Some, some churches, I'm sure it's not the case of CCM, but some churches give the impression that the reason you sing is kind of the build-up to the main event, which is the preaching of the word. And then you tag on a song at the end just to round it all out. Some people treat the singing as, as being the filler. So if you've got kids' groups, the kids' groups leave during the song because it's just a nice filler and no one will notice people going out and coming in. If you read Colossians 3.16, like, I don't see how you can come to that conclusion. It's exactly what we were talking about earlier on. God cares about reshaping and reordering our distorted affections and emotions. And the chief way he does that is through giving us his word that engages on that level of emotions and affections, and that is often through song. So I guess there are preachers here. My challenge to you is that if you're preaching a sermon and you have no care or consideration about what is sung before or after, you are neglecting your role as preacher. You really are. Because the musicians, they are not just teeing up your sermon and then finishing it off. They are the ones that you're giving responsibility to lead your people in emotionally, affectionately preparing for the word and then letting the word dwell in them richly afterwards. Now, if you're like me, you're nowhere near as musically talented as your musicians. You should not make calls on the actual music, but you need to talk with your musicians because we've only done half the job if we preached a good sermon. But we need to make sure the word dwells in us richly as we sing those truths, declaring their praises to God and then spurring one another on. Uh, music must be valued in our churches because it's crucial to what we do. Uh, finally, community. So our scriptures, we're talking about love one another, be hospitable, comfort one another. Mm. It's all talking about the, there's a corporate togetherness that's necessary for us to be the Christians God wants us to be. We can't do it by ourselves. Yeah. And so well, our meetings need to give opportunity for that, particularly in the form of caffeine, of being together and having time before and after. But when we're together... We're not individuals before yeah. God. We're there as a, as a boy. Yeah. And we need to make room for us to do those one another commands to one another. Uh, which means often some of the structures that are common to the way that churches meet maybe aren't apt for that. You know, people did... They, they actually met centrally. So the impression is often given that, you know, the early church just met in each other's homes. That's not true. They met in synagogues. They met in the temple courts. But they did meet in homes as well. And maybe we need to make sure that we have that combination, that big gathering with smaller gatherings so we can do these hospitality commands together. We've reached the end of our time. And guess what? The questions for discussion and all the controversial parts I'm going to miss. Can I set you two pieces of homework? Uh, One. Can I suggest... uh, 
Um, homework number one. Uh, can you go through these questions for discussion, maybe just with one or two others, sometime in the period between this meeting and your next meeting, uh, and work out how what we've seen today helps you to answer those questions? Okay? Yeah, so um, just with uh, one or two other people who are here today, sometime in the next month, work through questions one to five um, in the questions for discussion on this worship handout. And then the other homework, which I'd love you to do, um, in the reading on the Psalms handout, there's a book down the bottom called um, Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Um, If you've got the money, I'd love for you to buy that or borrow it. It is an incredibly short book. It's like 50 pages. It will take you an hour and a half, two hours to read. I'd love you to do that and then let it inform your prayer life. And then next time you meet, just share with the people on your table how it's impacted your prayer life over the past month.